Hey everybody, it's Joe. Just a quick heads up before the show starts. We tried some new recording techniques this time, which resulted in some echo in my voice. So just a heads up, that's out there. Hope it doesn't hurt your uh, listening experience too much and enjoy the show. Hello everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for November 24th, 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan, what are we doing here? Well, it's a takes show, so we're going to give you some of our takes. We're going to comment on other people's takes. Sometimes it'll be funny, sometimes it'll be very serious, but it'll always be adequately informed. And just remember, we are inhuman. We are perfect. We are on the ivory tower. Oh, is that what we're not going for? Oh, no, I, don't no, I think know. it's about time they knew how we really felt about ourselves. Yeah, I think we're a bunch of narcissists who think we are perfect. I mean, inherently, in some way, we had to somewhat think that, right? Yeah, maybe not perfect, but, you know, take take some gall to try to force our voices down everyone's ears once a week. Listen to us. So anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, this week I want to talk about the Paramount Decree, and we're going to have to go on a little field trip through history, but I promise there's a reason why it is very, very relevant today. But Evan, I hate the field trips to history. Well, then uh, you have free will. You can, you know, take out your your headphones. You can can check out. You at home, you can can do whatever. But I'm going to talk about it. All right. All right, everybody, wait for, uh, here's Evan's 20-minute rant. Oh, No input from me. Gonna be 40, gonna be 40. Okay. All right, great. So, the Paramount Decree. In general, the Paramount Decree was a legal precedent which dictated how the motion picture industry could operate, and it has been in place since 1948. So... To understand the context of the Paramount Decree, we have to go all the way back to the 1920s. After World War I, there was a big boom in public demand for film. By 1928, the industry as a whole was selling 80 million tickets per week. Staggering numbers that we have not matched in modern times. And this appetite for film only grew in the Depression era and then in the World War II era. The demand for film grew as people increasingly needed a distraction and an escape from depressing social conditions. So, this increased demand led to the golden age of the studio system. And when we talk about the studio system, we have to understand that the bulk of films were being produced by what were known as the Big Five Studios, some of which, many of which still exist today, these being MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO. One of the ways that they maintained such power was through a system known as vertical integration. This means that the big five companies owned their own production studios, they owned the distribution companies, and they controlled exhibition by owning theaters. And what this vertical integration allowed was certain unfair practices like blind bidding and block booking. And we'll get into what those mean in a second. So the big five owned a lot of theaters, 
but they didn't own all of the theaters. Independent theaters still existed, but the Big Five had outsized leverage since they had such a large industry share. So they could force these practices of blind bidding and block booking. Blind bidding is forcing theaters to agree to run films that they have not seen and that they have no quality control over. So eh, forcing these theaters to take their films sight unseen. And block booking is a practice by which movies are packaged together for exhibition. And here's why block booking was a problem. Let's say that an independent theater wanted to show a new film starring Cary Grant. Every, every theater was going to run this film. It was going to be the biggest film. Cary Grant's a big marketable star. The independent theater absolutely needs to show this movie or they're going to be completely left out in the cold in terms of box office revenue. Well, let's say MGM is making the film with Cary Grant. They own their own theaters, so they know that they're going to have exhibition for their film in their own theaters. So when it comes to these smaller independent theaters, they can afford to play hardball. So they say, okay, we'll, we'll sell you the Cary Grant picture, but you're also going to have to fill the rest of your screens with other movies that we made that don't have Cary Grant, that are often produced very cheaply, but thanks to the blind bidding system, you have no recourse other than to just not accept the Cary Grant film, which again is pretty much not an option. So block booking and blind bidding created a pretty big bind for independent theaters and squeezed out other competition because if theaters are having all of their programming taken up by these blocks of films, this means that independent studios don't have anywhere to exhibit their films. So it was very difficult for independent studios to exist in the 1930s and 40s, and that's why the Big Five, as well as the Little Three, had so much power in the industry. So so let me get this straight. So there were the... Uh the movie theaters owned by the studios and they showed their films in that. And then there were movie theaters that were, you know, not owned by the big studios, but through their agreements that they, they would make them essentially run like movie theaters owned by the studios. That's absolutely correct. Okay. All of these practices were, causing a lot of harms. Independent theaters had little control over what they could show, and individual consumers often had to face a marketplace that was filled with inferior products because when studios knew that they could sell a block of their films, they really only had to expend a lot of time and money and effort onto the one tentpole film, and the other films they would just try to make as cheaply as possible. So during this time, you see a huge number of films being made, but many of them are of very low quality and haven't survived to this day. No one has even cared enough to preserve a great many of these films. So the United States government actually sued the Big Five movie studios under antitrust laws, specifically the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. And this was resolved to a degree in 1940 through what's known as a consent decree. And this is a very important concept. A consent decree 
is essentially an impermanent settlement. It's an agreement whereby the government says, we'll drop the lawsuit as long as you make certain changes to your industry by a given time. If not, the lawsuit's gonna pick up again. So the government gave the big producers within the film industry three years until 1943 to reform their practices of block booking and blind bidding in order to increase competition within the film industry. And the studios did not comply. They were making too much money and didn't feel it was necessary to honor this consent decree. So the lawsuit resumed because the conditions were not met, and the suit made it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And in 1948, the court ruled 7-1 to one that the current studio system was in violation of antitrust legislation. By allowing the Big Five studios to unfairly leverage their power against smaller firms, this was deemed anti-competitive and ultimately bad for consumers. And the result of this case is what is known as the Paramount Decree. It is the things stipulated by the federal government that were no longer going to be allowed in the film industry. And it's important to know that the case itself, the most significant aspect of the case was simply that it upheld the earlier consent decree and made that... It forced the companies to actually abide by the earlier consent decree. It did not create a new law. And the biggest mm -hmm. things that were addressed within the Paramount decree was that it said no more vertical integration and specifically no more block booking. So studios could choose to either sell off their production end or their exhibition end. No longer could MGM have MGM Studios and MGM Theaters. And what all of the studios ended up deciding to do was to sell off their theaters because the production gave them more control over the product and was ultimately more profitable. And then, in addition, the Paramount Decree ended block booking which had a big impact on the film industry. Theaters are now independent. It's kind of a free-for-all within the exhibition world. A lot of new companies are popping up, and because they no longer have to accept large blocks of inferior films from big studios that are leveraging their size to create unfair market advantages, they can begin to experiment with their programming a little more. So what you find is that American cinemas become much more diverse in what's shown on the screen. In the 1930s and early 1940s, it was very difficult to find independently produced films in theaters on the big screen. It was extremely difficult to import foreign films into this country for mass exhibition because there simply weren't the screens to display them. They were all committed to block-booked pictures from the Big Five. Mm -hmm. And so, now, even though the number of films that are being produced has gone down, the quality is going up. Because even the major studios, which used to be making a ton of films, now have pared back the number of films they're making. But since they actually have to compete, 
they are making they're they're spending more money and are increasing the production value of the fewer number of films that they are making. Mm-hmm. So big big takeaways from the Paramount decree: film production in terms of numbers went down, but quality and diversity rose after 1948. There was more room mm-hmm. for auteurs. Individuals who wanted to work outside of the studio system. This was now possible after the Paramount Decree. And another huge impact that this had was its effective dismantling of what's known as the Hayes Code. In 1930, the United States government, pressured by the Catholic Legion of Decency, passed a motion picture code that stipulated what type of content could be shown in films that were produced in the United States. It's the largest act of censorship that the film industry has ever had to endure before or after. And so there were certain restrictions on what kinds of films Americans could produce. For example, you could depict morally negative behavior, such as violence or infidelity but in order to get it past the censors the characters who were guilty of immoral acts by the standards of the time would always have to they would always have to learn a lesson in the end they would have to get their comeuppance to prove that their their actions were wrong so at the time you have a lot of film noirs and gangster films that always have to end in death for the protagonist whether or not the story made sense for it to end that way didn't matter. You could only get the violence and the shadiness by the censors if you ended the film in a way that pleased them. But after the Paramount Decree, recall that more foreign films have now flooded the U.S. market. And foreign films don't have to undergo the same scrutiny of the censorship board as stipulated by the Hayes Code. So starting in 1948 and continuing into the 1950s, American audiences are now exposed to uncensored film really for the first time in decades. And it gradually changes sensibilities about what's acceptable in film. It elevates film as an art form and eventually they stop enforcing the Hayes Code in 1966-1967. It, it depends what people. Different people have different points that they peg the start of the post Hayes Code era. I would probably peg it in 1967, where The Graduate depicted mature sexual themes and Bonnie and Clyde displayed graphic violence. That's that's the the genesis point for me in 1967. But it kicked off the American new wave of independent directors making challenging, mature, artistic films. And that would not have happened as we know it, or it would have been greatly delayed, if not for the Paramount Decree opening up a market for foreign and independent films to challenge the status quo. The Paramount Decree ended the studio system as we know it, and ended what's referred to as the golden age of the studio system, but besides for five to eight companies, it was a major benefit to most of American and world cinema. And so, 
This practice has been in place ever since 1948. And it's never really been challenged because, as I said, for the most part, film has benefited from the lack of monopolistic practices within the industry. And then, on Monday, the Department of Justice announced that it's moving forward with a plan to terminate the Paramount Decree. Recall that the Supreme Court only upheld the initial consent decree, which the government could technically withdraw at any time. And so, without any outstanding legal backing, the Department of Justice has decided that it's time to end the Paramount Decree. And once they officially go through with terminating the Paramount Decree, they're going to give it a two-year sunset period. And then those two years are the only thing separating us from pre-1948 monopolistic practices. And the biggest question is, why? <laughs> no, Nobody has really complained about the Paramount Decree. It has largely helped cinema. And... The official reasoning from the Department of Justice, they've commented that the, the firms, specifically the firms listed in the original complaint, would not be able to reinstate their cartel-like control over the film industry, and so therefore we don't need the Paramount Decree anymore, which mm -hmm. is suspect to me. Mostly, I think it's due to this general bent within... Trump's executive branch to deregulate and deregulate and deregulate, regardless of the implications. So what are the implications? What could happen if we indeed take away the protections of the Paramount Decree? I want to present two scenarios that I believe are likely to happen in the event that the Department of Justice repeals the Paramount Decree. First is, logically, the return of vertical integration. Big studios, such as Disney, will likely begin to purchase exhibition venues. Disney will buy its own movie theaters. And here's why that's a problem. There would be nothing stopping Disney from trying to create situations where they were the only place in town to show movies that you or the general public is very eager to see. Let's say you want to go see whatever newest Star Wars movie they have playing on its opening weekend. Disney could, if they choose to, only open it in their own Disney theaters without being able to have competition from AMC or from Cinemark, or even other smaller local film theaters, Disney could jack up the prices on you and force you to pay exorbitant sums if you want to see the new Star Wars movie in its original release, which is obviously very bad for consumers. The other, perhaps, nightmare scenario is that we could see a return of block booking. So, if you, let, let's say a company like Netflix knows that there's going to be a lot of people who want to see a prestige film like Roma 
or The Irishman or Marriage Story, well, Netflix could tell your local theater, well, well, we'll sell you Roma, but you also have to take The Package and The Kissing Booth and all of these really, really shitty films that people probably aren't going to go pay to see, but if your theater wants to show Roma, they may have no other choice. And what will happen then is, as Joe said, even theaters that are independent, in order to get the types of content that people want to see, that they want to exhibit, may be forced to accept conditions that effectively weed out films from non-major companies like Netflix or Disney or even some of the old guard, like 20th Century Fox. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have a horrible impact. Uh, studios like A24 would probably survive, but the next independent distributor might never come about. Someone else who is trying to get diverse original stories onto the screen would have no avenue to do that. We would go back to a situation where it's unlikely that a majority of foreign imports would come through unless they were backed by a major studio like Netflix. So I'm disappointed to hear that for <laughs> no, no real reason that the Justice Department is looking at overturning a 70-year precedent that has been a major boon to competition in the film industry. Joe, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I, I do wonder somewhat if this in the modern era would have an effect. I mean, I'm sure it will because hardly ever is it when we have... <laughs> A piece of law that's been long standing, do we change it and nothing changes? <laughs> the law was there for a purpose, and these companies, they do follow these laws, even if they're not super psyched about it or even think about trying to change it. So, you know, I do wonder what, like, a Disney movie theater would be like, though. Um, and I do wonder, you know, I don't think it would, it could get to like the days when it was because that would take a lot of capital investment. And as you know, for the most part, as we explored before that, the kind of business model of theaters is a tougher business than the, uh, making of movies, at least it seems to be so you know if it came to be that they the the studios bought up a whole bunch of theaters that could be something but i don't know if they could necessarily start up a whole bunch of theaters at this point well if they bought um, the theaters outright that would be you know just as bad there there's no well yeah that's that, that's what i'm saying is that you know they they would have to buy up a bunch of theaters you know they would probably have to acquire one of the big theater companies to make that work. Well, I guess here, here's, here's actually some important context that I didn't share in the, uh, the long rant I just did, but I did look this up. It doesn't take a large amount of theater ownership 
to control a significant amount of the market share. Back before the Paramount decree, the Big Five only owned 17% of the movie theaters in the nation. And yet, mm -hmm. through their practices such as block booking, which goes part and parcel with vertical integration, they were able to control 45% of theater revenue, despite owning just 17% of the actual theaters. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't require as radical an investment for some of the bigger companies. I'm, I'm really thinking of Disney right now to yeah. leverage itself to anti-competitive status. Yeah. And I also wonder if there could be a return of the studio system style of making movies. Like, it, it seems like right now that... Like, I, I mean, I guess I'm not uh, super well-versed on this, but I wonder if, you know, the studios would go back to practice of making lots of movies for very low budget that aren't good i mean there's already a lot of movies that aren't good out there um, yeah and the 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 cultural the trends of modern our modern culture aren't such that you know people are going crazy to go to movie theaters already um so I don't know if it would even make financial sense to make a bunch of, you know, shitty movies because also a part of the studio system was, you know, wasn't it that they just had, you know, they had a, like a, a stable of actors and actresses and they, they just worked for the studio. Yeah. So the, the studio always kind of had to be putting out stuff because they the climate of all, production you know, was very different. Essentially you didn't have, independent actors and writers and directors and cinematographers jumping around to projects that interest them. You had these creatives on retainers with specific companies, and then the companies would just sort of, like you said, constantly put them to work on. Right. Something. It's like, it's like instead of, Oh, I'm working on the Spider-Man movie. And then afterwards I'm going to go be in this. It's like, yeah, I go in, check in every day at MGM, and uh, I wonder what I'll be in today. Yeah, maybe they'll um. <laughs> put me on the, the new Western picture. Maybe I'll be... Yeah, yeah, something like that. So I wonder if there would be a return to that. I mean, the the concerns over, uh, what is it, block booking and... What was the other one? Blind uh, bidding is the other practice blind, that goes along with block bidding. booking because you're not allowed to see the, the films that you are yeah. agreeing to purchase. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wonder if blind bidding would. I, I could see block booking being a deal, but you know, that I, I don't know. I don't know what the greater implications of this because whenever something like this happens, there's there's kind of the period where it's like, oh, things have changed. Of course, things won't go back to the way they were. And then you realize the only reason why things don't go back to the way they were is because they had the rules. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not adequately informed on this to make a real super great opinion on it. <laughs> well, I, um, I think it's valid to understand. Yes, Evan, what are your ideas? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it, it's valid to appreciate that the context of filmmaking has changed in the last 70 years. As it was pointed out to me, actors have a lot more power, and especially some top-end actors might not be willing to relinquish that power if we were to see a return to the old studio system. But what, what troubles me is that there would be nothing stopping these types of practices from returning. And it wouldn't have to be a complete reversion to a 1947 film style for there to be negative impacts on filmmaking. I think that, you know, maybe, maybe you can dispute this or, or not, but I, I think that the, the two scenarios that I've laid out are really plausible. And I've, I've read articles corroborating that other people think that they are fairly plausible scenarios. So are, are we likely to immediately turn back the clock? No, but the, the legal protection gave the film industry so much more security. And it is very concerning to see that evaporate within two years. This is, this is kind of a rare thing where we could see major impacts to how we sitting here talking about this and listening to this experience cinema within the next two to three years. Yeah. I wonder. I, I'm also kind of curious because it, it, it seems like so far Netflix has, you know, that's kind of like a version of the vertical integration that was banned under this agreement but it's not explicitly banned because, you know, it didn't because it's home exhibition. Yep. Yep. That was well, not, yeah, the technology not even didn't the scope. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I wonder because Netflix definitely has, um, their own shows, but they don't show just their own shows. I mean, they definitely prioritize them, but, but there is the, um, stage where it is believed that um, Netflix is going to go on to, you know, it, it seems like in the, the streaming platform era, I mean, this isn't just cinema, but TV as well, that the, all, all the content producers are moving towards making their own streaming platform and that nobody's going to show other people's work because then you have to pay licensing. So, I mean, it's kind of like the idea with movie theaters. You know, nobody's going to want to pay to have a movie, you know, shown in their theater that isn't already part of their corporate conglomerate because it's just cheaper to show their movies. And here's where I think the key distinction lies between typical theatrical exhibition and Netflix-style streaming-at-home exhibition. Scarcity. If... There's there's a finite number of screens, and there's not a finite number of things that Netflix can make available to streaming, you know, based on what they have the technical capabilities to do. But for mm. every film that MGM blocked, block booked into a theater, that was an indie or a foreign film that could not be shown on that screen because the screen was committed. Whereas at Netflix... They can kind of have a coexistence between the original content 
and other content. It's it's not a zero sum game anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to our uh, previous discussion. What what do we want our cinema experience to be? And I don't know. I don't know what I want it to be. I I, I want it to be protected by the Paramount decree. That's there you go. That's me. And then I'm like, let's see. I don't know. He's trying. Well, we'll try. We'll try to all figure it out. That's what we're doing here. Unadequately informed. We're figuring things out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Joe. Evan. What do you want to talk about? I, you know, it's not adequately informed if we don't talk about taxes. Oh, yeah. Um, we're we're a tax takes about. show. Tax takes. Yeah. Tax take. We're, we're professional tax takers. No, that's the IRS. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to um, go on a little exploration of corporate tax or more specifically corporate income tax. This was brought about because there was a story in the New York Times, the paper of record, that FedEx had for, I believe it was the fiscal year 2018, paid no corporate income tax. And this was likened because they um, they benefited greatly from the tax law change in 2017 put in place by the Trump administration. And when people talk about corporate income tax it, it the the conversation always feels a little weird to me what this often gets brought up in the context of amazon amazon is like the biggest fucking company out there and oftentimes year over year they don't pay any corporate income tax which is people are like how is it so big and they're not paying any money um in corporate income tax And the reason is that corporate income tax is tax on corporate income. So it's not a tax on all the money that was made from that business. Not the revenue, but the profit. So in corporate income tax, only profits are taxed. If your company comes, you know, has losses over the course of a year, or comes out even, you don't pay any corporate income tax. Now, there are ways you can skirt around it. I mean, the way Amazon does it is that they just pour, you know, if they have any extra money, they just pour it straight back into the company through capital investment, research and development, all that fun stuff. But there are other ways companies can do it. They do stock buybacks or... You know, they contribute to their employee retirement funds. But it always just seems like a little weird to me, the corporate income tax. Because a company's main goal, like almost only goal, is to make money. To make a profit. To turn a profit. And they'll do anything that they can. And they will pay large sums of money to you know into accounting and doing whatever you know they can do 
large scale things to avoid paying tax that, you know, individuals or small companies can't even do. So I'm always I've you know, I believe that, you know, companies do a social good by making, you know, by existing, by giving people jobs, by making products that I've always kind of thought maybe we shouldn't have corporate income tax um, because it seems like a the corporations don't like it and it's really hard to collect. There's, you know, a lot of companies can go through loopholes or what, you know, when I was doing the research for this, it was kind of funny. You look up corporate tax deductions and you get one set of answers and then you look up corporate tax loopholes and then you get another set of uh, answers. And I definitely think that they should pay tax. I don't know if corporate income tax is that way. Maybe payroll tax or greater uh, income tax could be a solution. But, uh, I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not, I haven't thought enough on this, how to completely articulate my views on this. But I've just kind of felt that corporate income tax is kind of a, it's, it's almost disincentivizing. You know, Denmark doesn't have any corporate income tax. Um, there's a lot of companies out or countries out there that don't have any corporate income tax that are quite progressive in other ways. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of some some thoughts on corporate tax. Evan, push back on me. Well, um, I don't have a ton of pushback. I mean, I feel that in the status quo, we need corporate income tax because there are so many ways for people who benefit from these corporations to avoid other forms of taxes. So it, it seems like one other tool to connect, to collect revenue that we need from the people who should be paying it, although indirectly, but I don't necessarily, that, that's, so that's, that's pragmatic. That's status quo. But in my utopia, there's not necessarily a corporate income tax. I think that there are certain taxes that I favor regular income tax for individuals, Wealth tax, uh, transaction taxes on Wall Street speculation, and estate taxes, and, uh, ca- or or even just a capital gains tax that mirrors income tax. Yeah, I, I I like both because I think that there are negative externalities associated with high frequency trading. So I, I like the transaction tax to disincentivize high frequency trading, but I also agree that there needs to be a capital gains tax. But in terms of corporate income tax, no, I think you make a good point that if a company is willing to reinvest their profits into things that help the societal good, that create more jobs, that create more research, that will ultimately benefit society as a whole, I don't necessarily want to tax that pool of money. As as I've said, my two benchmarks for taxes are does it stop people from meeting their basic needs? And does it create bad economic incentives? And I think that in the case of corporate income taxes, it might be guilty of that second part, creating negative incentives. But I would want to make sure that we have a strong system in place so that while Amazon may not have to pay a corporate income tax, 
Jeff Bezos is fairly taxed on the amount that he personally profits from Amazon's work as an individual. Right. And the major shareholders. Yes. And 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 from this, this uh, some people would liken my position to believing that uh, corporations have no responsibility to society. And my kind of counter on that is I, you know, in kind of my utopia, you know, in the world where we have we do have a capitalist system. Um, that's not in dispute. But I believe that, you know, if if we uh, get rid of corporate taxes, that corporate income taxes, that would give more leverage to regulate companies in other ways that may decrease profits in, in other ways, create stricter environmental standards, create stricter workplace safety, have stricter labor rules that give greater benefit to uh, the the wage earner, the worker, the working man. Can you sort of explain so, the, the link there between lack of corporate income tax and then all of those other things uh, being improved? Yeah, so... So right now, so so there is kind of a a trade-off. So if we tax profits, there there is a kind of I mean it, there doesn't have to be a trade-off, but kind of in the mental accounting of things. You know, workplace safety, higher environmental standards, that cost and 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 labor rules, that tangibly cost companies money. That reduces their ability to turn a profit which they seek out to do. And a corporate income tax also is something that diminishes profitability of a company. So if we get rid of the corporate income tax, which is something that decreases profitability, it will increase profitability um, on you know normal business structures. But then to balance that out, we can have stricter rules among, uh, like I said, environmental rules, labor practices, um, and, so I guess, okay. uh, and safety. That makes sense. But who does it change the calculus for? Does it change the calculus for legislators in that they might be, they might say, okay, we gave them a corporate break, so now we're not, or we gave them a tax break, so we're not going to go easy on them on regulations? Or does it change the calculus from the perspective of the owners to say, well, okay, we're not paying corporate taxes, so we better comply with existing regulations. I mean, I mean, so businesses are going to do whatever they can to make a profit, um, to be more profitable for the most part. Um, they can set their own restrictions on themselves, but uh, that doesn't always happen. There's nothing stopping companies from trying to maximize profit through any means necessary. So this would be more from the legislative side, from more of a societal side, that we can know that the, the government isn't putting a big tax burden on these companies, but they are expecting them to comply in a societal, uh, socially positive way among other means. So they it's more about a, the, the social justification of getting the, the public on board with this way of thinking. A public on board, and I think I, I think of it as a fair trade-off. I mean, in my mind, that yes, we won't we won't tax your profits, 
but we're going to expect you to do more in society because there is a big debate right now about uh, what social obligations do companies have in a capitalist society. And for the last 40 or so years, ever since the days of good old Milton Friedman, we there has been kind of this idea that profitability is a social good, that economic output is moral justification of itself. And I don't strictly believe that, but I do believe that companies don't do, you know, if left unattended, will only do whatever they can to maximize profit in the short term. But we can, if we reduce the amount of tax that we pay on them and great or uh, increase the regulation to decide what, what business can be, what a, how a business can profit off the world, that would be a fair trade-off. Because these companies, I mean, they're not always going to, I mean, in the end, they're going to do what's profitable. But we also have to, um, in a way, coax them into what's better for society. And this would be one way to do it. So those are my thoughts. You know, I've been working on a theory. This is half-baked and not completely adequately informed. But... You know how in the uh, income inequality debates, we talk all the time about how wages stopped going up for people in the 70s. Well, in the set, I don't know if it was in the 70s. It was around, you know, back around then somewhere. Milton Friedman posited that um, the only moral duty a company has is to its shareholders to increase their profits. And I wonder if, like, just a shift in corporal, corporate understanding of moral duties changed um, how uh, income is distributed. Yeah, so, I'm sure it. I'm sure thought. it has. Um, like, I wonder. I wonder. Like, you know, people cho- you know, point to a bunch of laws that changed and this or taxes, and I wonder if it just. One guy had an idea and everybody was like, oh, okay. Yeah, the idea is important, but so was the broad buy-in. The Gordon Gecko greed, for lack of a better word, is good. The Futurama 80s guy who does the hostile takeover of the company that's developing the cure for bonitis. It it pervaded the culture and I, I... I, th- I think your theory is is onto something. I think there's you can probably trace a direct link between that reframing of the economic morality of companies to the decline in wage growth, or I guess the stagnation of wage growth. So, but back to corporate income tax. It's it's a it's a ponderance. And whenever I see people talk about it, I'm always kind of uh, rolling my eyes. It's like, yes, Amazon is a massive, 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 massive company, but they also spend almost every dollar that they take in on making the company better or increasing, you know, spending capital, buying you know new warehouses, doing other things that other people think are evil behaviors, but they are spending it all. 
Um, I think in their entire history as a company, they've only been profitable one year. And I think it was either 2017 or 2018. Um, and that was strictly because they chose to. <laughs> and then they went right back to spending all of their money again. Well, so. I think that I think people would be less less outraged if they felt confident that Jeff Bezos and other high-level executives were paying their fair share in taxes, and I don't believe that belief is widely held, nor should it be. Right. Yeah. Like, I understand the sentiment, but I also, but then in the practical sense that there's a reason why it doesn't just happen. So, yeah. I wonder if, too, it has to do with this, this recontextualization that's gone on within law and public consciousness of corporations as people, which I'll just make my caveat and say that it's patently ridiculous to treat a corporation as a person in any way. But if we view Amazon as a person, if that's how the society is trending, then I think it's natural for people to want to apply similar taxation standards. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole corporations as people, I mean, in some ways it makes sense. Like if you sue a company, you're not suing every individual at the company, you sue the company. So in that way they act like a person, but it's, um, I don't know. I don't know. What I'm saying is the bankers should have gone to jail. I mean, I mean, maybe after the Great Recession, some some sort of recourse should have happened. But we're we're always figuring shit out. Maybe maybe getting rid of the corporate income tax could be a good thing and a net good for society. Maybe will be the tax haven through throughout all the world, <laughs> where some states are already doing out. it. There's already certain states. Yeah. Just watch the laundromat, yeah. or don't. It's I mean, it's no, it's it. mixed. It's it's a weird movie. There's some good parts, some not good parts, but you can watch it if you want to learn about tax havens. You won't learn that much, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. At a state level, I don't know um, why a state would have a corporate income tax on top of the federal income tax. I mean, I could understand why people would want it, but just kind of in a uh, you know, zero sum competition race to the bottom sense. Um, just wonder. But anyway, it's a that right now we poise the moral onus on companies to pay corporate income tax. And I believe that the kind of societal moral onus should be more in how they conduct their business more generally. I mean, we could also do both, but trade offs are trade offs. If you make it unprofitable to do business and you make it difficult to do business, then not a whole lot of business is going to happen. But yeah, just kind of my exploration of the uh, process. Also, in learning about the um, this pro in this uh, scenario, I learned about FedEx, and the founder of FedEx is Frederick Smith. So I'm surprised that the company isn't called FredEx. Ah, uh, that's my joke. 
That's how I ended <laughs> off. All right. So anyway, hey, uh, Evan, what, 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 who, what's our main topic today? So our main topic today comes from a listener, Colin B., great friend of the show, great personal friend of mine. And Colin writes, I would love to hear your take on censorship and disclaimer is in the arts. Big deal this week is Disney Plus coming out and the blog world has been in a frenzy about Disney's disclaimers on a few select movies from The Vault about depictions of outdated social views. This seemed to be a forced response to rumors that they would edit out harmful content in movies like Dumbo, like The Black Crows and ones named Jim Crow, clearly portraying African-American stereotypes, and then Lady and the Tramp with the Siamese cat song being chock full of stereotypes, just for two examples. So Colin then asks, is it Disney's responsibility to list these disclaimers? Should they re-release racist and stereotypical art? Did they say enough to right their wrongs? For example, Colin notes that Warner Brothers has those same types of views, saying has those same types of disclaimers, but they are more critical, saying that the depictions are wrong and Disney's disclaimers are softer. And does censorship belong in art at all? So obviously, a lot to unpack here. And the basic gist of this is a lot of Disney movies, or at least several Disney movies, used characters that were drawn from harmful cultural stereotypes. But as Disney is beloved, and a lot of these movies have ascended to the status of classics in animation, how do we reconcile the past depictions with the modern context of what we know about stereotyping. Mm -hmm. And personally, this idea of using disclaimers as a buffer between stereotypical depictions and modern audiences first came to me about three years ago when I watched the 1943 film Cabin in the Sky. And Cabin in the Sky was kind of a landmark film. It's one of the only films of its era that featured an all-black cast. However, the director and a lot of the production team were white. It was directed by the famous director, Vincente Minnelli. And so this means that even though it's an all-black cast, some of the characterizations still adhere to stereotypical and offensive modes of representation. And in my opinion, Cabin in the Sky is pretty mild. It's not as bad as Gone with the Wind, Birth of a Nation, some of these big ticket, really drenched in racism films. But nonetheless, the company releasing it in you know the 2010s felt the need to include a disclaimer which basically said, there are some stereotypical depictions of African Americans we're presenting them as they were in order to not hide from the history. Mm -hmm. And it can be pretty shocking when you first, or maybe not shocking, but jarring 
when you are not expecting that type of disclaimer and then all of a sudden they hit you with it right up front. Usually it's, it's an all black screen with some white text, very stark, very somber. But I still think that I appreciated the heads up. Mm-hmm. And the first important distinction that I want to make here is the idea that there is a line between censorship and contextualization. And especially when we talk about, yeah, and especially when we talk about Disney, we have a very clear comparative case study here because Disney has engaged both in auto-censorship and this contextualization. Disney has decided more or less to censor itself and not release Song of the South. Oh, you beat me to it. You, you, you got the first go. I was like, man, you know, we're talking about, you know, giving some contextualization on, you know, Dumbo and, you know, the, the cat one. But man, they won't even release Song of the South. Yeah, Song of the South is buried deep, deep in the Disney vault because... There were, like it's hard to even find rips of it online. I have oh yeah. tried to find it. Yeah, and obviously there being issues with depicting Rare Rabbit, Brer Fox, Tar Babies, really offensive stereotypes channeled into cartoon characters. And so Disney has said flat out, we, we don't talk about Song of the South. Although they do, that that's the movie where Zippity Doodah is from, and that's sort of one of the songs that has ascended into the Disney song canon. And yeah. so it's yeah. very weird that you have only that one scene of Uncle Ramus or whatever his name is singing Zippity Doodah, and then everything else is on lockdown. Yeah, or I also remember, Zippity. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Zippity Doodah has ascended, and Splash Mountain in the Disney parks is one of the, you know, top tier, you know, of all time classic Disney rides. And it's based on a movie that at this point, uh, almost nobody has seen. (laughs) I did not know that that was part of it. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I didn't learn about it until later, but you know, every, you know, in Disney world, most, a, a good number of rides are based on Disney properties and Splash Mountain is based on like a bunch of woodland creatures and it's kind of southern and all that kind of stuff. And I came to learn that it was based on Song of the South. So interesting. So, yeah. I also remember yeah. in the early 2000s when McDonald's did a Disney promotion where they had that line of small plastic figures with characters from all the movies from across time. I, I got a Br'er Fox toy, and I had no idea what it meant. We didn't have that VHS anywhere in the collection. It just was not a part of my sphere at all. And also, but they notably, still... notably, you didn't have that VHS in the dis, uh, collection because there was no VHS. Exactly, yeah. There was, we had most of the Disney movies, but there was, there was no way to acquire Song of the South. So that is closer to censorship another form of censorship would be for disney to as as colin says in the email to remove scenes containing these characters that would be a form of self-imposed censorship something that actually edits or restricts the release of the text itself as originally conceived 
However, I think to add a disclaimer at the beginning is really more of a contextualization to say, hey, this is the social climate at the time. The powers that be understand what is problematic about this now, but we still want to show you what it was. Right. And right. that's that's sort of something that I find pretty admirable, actually. I don't think we gain anything from censorship. I think pretending that racist depictions never happened only helps us to forget how harmful and painful they are. And so to answer the question of should they re-release these types of films with these kinds of depictions, I say yes. I, you know, obviously there's a curiosity element to it. I want to see what Song of the South is like. But I think with the proper contextualization, it can actually be an important teaching tool in understanding what types of representations are harmful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I definitely, I, I don't know. I, I could go either way on Song of the South. Like I do on my own curiosity, I very much do want to see it. But um, another point I wanted to make is that, you know, people make a hubbub when people give like trigger warnings or or, you know, this this uh, piece of media from the past may include, uh, you know, stuff that is insensitive to modern cultural sensibilities. But movies, uh, they, they already have warnings on them. It's called their rating. Um, we are warned as a society that a movie has violence in it, or it has adult themes, or it has sexual content in it. And now it's just Disney has taken upon themselves to additionally inform people that, hey, this is old, and it holds some old views and some old stereotypes that are no longer relevant or culturally acceptable. It's just another... A warning that is given to the viewers. We're already given warnings about what is in our media. Now, you could, the viewer could decide, you know, just as they do with the regular ratings, whether they want to have that or not, to watch something with that type of content or not. Maybe you want to decide that your child, you don't want your child to watch a film that has um, these outdated cultural representations. Or you could decide that with the specific context and given, you know, what you know and, and, you know, proper education that they could watch it. It's just another tool in the toolbox. It's not, you know, if you want to watch Dumbo, you can still watch Dumbo. Now, earlier I'd said, you know, I'm kind of fine either way with Song of the South, you know, being in or out. But I do have a problem with. Like, I just a general uneasiness with selective um, editing, taking stuff out. Like, I'm fine. Like, it, it, if we're going to say it's bad, let's take, you know, let's say the whole thing is bad and we don't show it. Or let's show the whole thing. But just taking out parts just feels weird to me. Like, yeah, because like, it robs us of that full context. And that's when you can get into not just censorship but willful manipulation of the original text, yeah. which is, yeah. to my mind, never a good idea. Right. I mean, not only does it just make an incomplete, I mean, normally an incomplete work when you just remove wholesale parts of it. Like if they remove the crows from Dumbo, 
it'd probably be a different, uh, probably be a different film, but it'd be weird to think that, you know, the rest of it, you know, just the parts that don't, you know, showcase it means that the rest of it is completely absolved, um, from whatever, you know, racist stereotypes or, you know, the such that happened that it's completely outside of the context of the bad parts. So I, you know, I'm all for, you know, if you're in or you're out, no, none of this kind of, you know, we're going to have it, but we're going to, you know, clean it up. Yeah, I agree. You, you should allow the original text to stand or fall on its own as an entire unit. I, I think that's reasonable. Because I'm, I'm, all, I'm also pretty against, I mean, this is a different topic that hopefully will just, you know, just this small little tangent. But like, I don't like it when works of art get changed post-fact. Like whenever Kanye releases an album now, he, you know, like a week later, he re-releases it with patch notes. Like, oh, we changed this. We, we, we nerfed this section. We gave a boost to these vocals. And it's just weird. Like when you release art, you've released it. That's, that's the deal. So I, I am definitely a believer that when art is released, it's released and that's what it is. Well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like that's sort of a way of thinking, and I don't disagree with you even, but I think that's a way of thinking that was born of a time when technological limitations meant that you couldn't change art right. in retrospect. Right. But now you can. Kanye can re-edit the album and put it out again. Disney can edit film, or you know, they can edit digital transfers of centuries-old films, you know? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's just a different landscape. It is a different landscape, but you know, if if something, you know, if you want to correct something, put it out as its own thing. Like it I mean, again, you know, there's the disconnect between, you know, what belongs to the artist and what belongs to the public, what belongs to the culture. You know, these are all things, these are big conversations that happen all the time, but I, I tend to believe that, you know, when you put a work of art out, you put it out. And whether you want to keep putting it out or not, that's another question. Like, Disney has no obligation to sell Song of the South, even though I want to watch it. And people feel like they should because they put out every other movie. But, you know, if they if they really don't want that to be out there, that's fine. But... Um, it's their choice. <laughs> what if they, what if they just released a version of song of the South that like just got rid of the most racist parts and it's only like 15 like, minutes, it's like long. a 15 minute movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they just released zippity doodah and that's it. And I so, think there's an element, yeah, of this contextualization that, that does end up being really critical because as we've noted, we, we can evaluate different artifacts and texts in a longer term context now. And I, I'm always reminded of this discourse kind of running parallel to the discourse surrounding Confederate monuments. Do we mm -hmm. tear them down? 
Do we put up a plaque that explains the context? Do we move them into museums? And I guess I'm of the mind that ideally the ones that have historical value should be moved to museums and it, the other ones, you know, who cares? And at very minimum, ones that are going to remain standing should have plaques, accompanying plaques that explain historical context about why it was named for a Confederate general and why we would not make that same choice today. Right. Um, and and, and where art art is so it's so subjective. Like I, I kind of mentioned earlier, there's the you know the what artist intent. There's the part where the art kind of belongs to them, but then there's also the part where the art belongs to the public as well because they're the ones who enjoy it. So there's this duality. I don't think, um, you know, Disney or other companies have any necessary, you know, uh, necessarily have an obligation to re-release their art that they find as problematic. Um, you know, if they just outset, you know, out and out denied that they made Song of the South, <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be problematic. That'd be a weird but, move. Yeah, that would be a very weird move. That would be that would be you know a higher level of censorship. But then I I I've kind of wanted to get into this idea of censorship. So it's not like some governing body telling Disney don't re-release these or you need to put a disclaimer on it. It's them choosing it themselves and. You know, <laughs> when uh, when artists or, you know, companies release different forms of art, they get to choose what's in them and how they're represented. Um, like, I think in the modern era, you know, the uh, the Assassin's Creed games, which don't really, you know, they 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 don't, you know, play on cult. You know, they they're based in different cultures and different worlds that aren't just, you know, kind of the regular white world and they don't make, you know, really racist or, you know, problematic depictions of these different cultures, but boy, they make sure that on the loading screen, every time you load up the game, they tell you that this game was made by a multicultural team with people from all around the world of all different backgrounds, all to make this game. So... I think there's nothing wrong with people wanting to say that, hey, this was wrong, or we think this is wrong now, or this this doesn't fit into modern politeness. So I don't think of that as censorship. Well, um, you you I think bring up this really interesting concept of obligation, and Colin in his his email query specifically asks about the nature of Disney's responsibility. So I guess I want to just more explicitly pull that apart. What responsibility does Disney have to do anything or to what responsibility does Disney have to its properties? What responsibility does Disney have to its public? I mean, I, I think the, I don't know if they had, you know, uh, like I said earlier, I don't think they have obligation to re-release their content 
And if they do choose to re-release their content, they don't have a real obligation to put warnings. But it, it seems to be their choice that they want to. I mean, maybe um, some people would have the viewpoint that, oh, this, the, the leftists are coming, they're so angry, and they're going to destroy the company unless they put a little brief sidebar on Dumbo. I, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, it, it, it's just part of the culture now. We're more aware of how media depictions of people can affect people. And it seems, you know, I don't know if it's their obligation because, you know, there's plenty of old uh, VHS and DVD copies of Dumbo out there. And Lady and the Tramp, they, you know, they, they contain all that stuff. They're out there. So, you know, if, if Disney is, wants to, for the modern, you know, their releases going forward, call to attention to what they believe was a misstep or a mischaracterization or characterization, then it's their choice. Yeah, I'm on kind of two minds on it. On one hand, everything is more or less chaotic, and Disney doesn't have responsibility to me, doesn't have responsibility to anyone, to anything. They can do whatever they want, sort of in a, a chaotic world. But if we want to take the social perspective our obligations or our responsibilities are whatever we can agree to socially. So therefore, it makes sense that we can socially construct responsibilities if they are in the best interest of the majority of people concerned. And I think that when it comes to such big issues of representation and race and racism, I think there's a clear societal benefit derived from handling the topics with sensitivity. There's no, you know, there's, there's no final arbiter and enforcer who can make Disney do that. But if we all agree that that's their responsibility, it can be their responsibility. I mean, if, if Disney wants to continue to be seen as a morally upstanding brand... This is, this is what they take on. We have decided as a society that to be morally upstanding, you have to be keen to uh, the representations of minorities in your works. And if they want to see as polite, they want to see as upstanding, they have to acknowledge those in their past. It's just, there, you know, if Disney wanted to be... <laughs> Uh, you know, do a complete turn and be the edgy company, the edgy film house that made movies that pushed against society's edges. Spencer's gift of film production. Yeah, if they wanted to be that, then, yeah, they wouldn't put disclaimers on that, on this at all. They'd be like, fuck it, we're putting it out. It is what it is. But no, they, they want to be seen as the morally proper, kind of the small C conservative filmmaking where they're not making big bold pushes against how society traditionally portrays things they are the mainstream and they want to be within the mainstream and currently in the mainstream we you, you have they have to give a little bit more thought to what they do so then to 
answer one of the specific questions posed, how strong should these disclaimers be, do you think? As strong or weak as they want them to be. Um, now, some people, it, it, it's, again, to Disney's preference. If they want to be seen as totally on board with all the ideas about to try and never depict someone in a bad light or use stereotypes or anything, then they can, de- can condemn it in the strongest terms. Or if they want to dip their toes and not call a ton of attention to it, they can, you know, put a softer disclaimer on it. It's, it's again on how they want to be representative and what their obligation is if they, you know, how they want their company to be represented. And I would counter that maybe it's not as strong as they want them to be and how strong as they need to be given the title in question. So I know that these are not Disney properties, but we're going to speak about them generally. So if we look at something like Cabin in the Sky, which I believe to be fairly mild, I think a soft, hey, these are stereotypes, we don't really go by them anymore, watch this movie, is appropriate. But for something, say, like, I'll go back to Birth of a Nation, where the depictions are so flagrantly disgusting and so central to the narrative, I think that calls for a stronger disclaimer to say, listen, this there is absolutely no shred of verisimilitude to actual real people in this film. We watch it because of its innovations in narrative structure, but for the love of everything, do not take to heart the racial depictions. Yeah, and I, I think that, like, yeah. I feel like uh, Birth of a Nation needs like to have its own like half hour mini documentary disclaimer before it, before you watch it. And you need to sign a waiver. I, I know that that's a joke, but, but something like that, right? Like there's, and especially with Birth of a Nation, it was used for so long as a recruitment tool of the clan. Because they could say, look at what African-Americans are like. Look at what black people are like. Ignoring the fact that the people are white people in blackface enacting really stereotypical behavior that was written and directed by white people. So I think that a lot of us can probably look at that and understand that it's wrong without a disclaimer. But there's obviously, history has shown us that there's obviously a group of people who will willfully or ignorantly misinterpret the appropriate historical context. Yeah. There, there will be some people who watch Birth of a Nation and think, oh man, they're just telling it how it is. Or how, yeah. how it was. And now... So- We've been we've been having um, what for me has been really engaging conversation about a lot of very sort of practical nuts and bolts applications of these things. But I want to make sure that we respond to all of Colin's questions. And the final and perhaps most interesting one, I think, takes us to a more general theoretical level. Does censorship belong in art at all? 
And I think this is sort of getting to that idea that artistic pieces, even Birth of a Nation, are inherently interpretive. So by putting a disclaimer or engaging in any sort of censorship-type act, does that detract from the interpretive nature of art? What are your thoughts on that, Joe? Hmm. Like, so uh, in art, you know, it, it's it's something being put out there and people interpret it. I don't see any issue with an artist trying to add context to um, contextualize um, an art form. You know, sure, but what if it's it. not the artist? What if it's a company 80 years later? You know, I, I I mean, if 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 it's um, I I don't have an issue with it, be because <laughs> somebody you know if they're releasing it, they have some sort of stake in the game. It's you know either they licensed it out or it's theirs outright. And again, I I put I I preface that I don't like re-editing stuff, just kind of selectively taking parts out. But, like, putting a disclaimer, I mean, giving some context, that's, that's perfectly fine to me. Now, I'm not a big fan of overall, like, a, a state agency that censors media um, on that level. But I believe that companies who, you know, have properties that they want to keep selling, you know, can do can give whatever beginning context that they want to, as long as they're still just um, putting out the full original work. That's, that. I mean, that's perfectly fine with me. Yeah, so my thought is that, especially with film, there are more dimensions to consider than the artistic dimension. Because from an artistic standpoint... Sure, I can definitely see the appeal of wanting the work to stand on its own, allowing for the viewer to create their own interpretive context and to proceed that way. I think that there's a lot of merit to that in a purely artistic context. But film also becomes a historical document. It shows what practices and attitudes were acceptable at a given time, and it reveals a lot about the society that created that film. And so from a social perspective, I think that the introduction, maybe not of censorship, but certainly of contextualization, is absolutely fair game. I mean, I don't think it's even, you know, other art forms have contextualization, like if you go and see a work of art in a museum, you know, there's like a museum guide who can tell you about, you know, the history and what what place in the world it had. Or there's like a little plaque that that explains it. It's not just out of no or it's an exhibit that, you know, all the works of art together come together with a certain theme. It's not just hanging up a painting. It's there's a greater context to it. And those museums provide that context and they choose to do it. You know, they're not the um, original painters, but they are putting together something that is also a work of art 
through works of art and they can add whatever context they feel like. Um, so it's putting context to art is not an issue. We do it all the time. I mean, hell would it be (laughs) censorship if you're like, Hey man, let's watch this movie, but I'm just going to warn you, you know, I think there's a lot there, but you know, there are some stuff that's kind of racist in there. Like, is that censoring an art? Is that uh, swaying what people think about it? Because we do it all the time. You know, if we think that someone's going to think, um, you know, whatever they're watching is inappropriate or problematic, we, you know, we'll give them a heads up that maybe, hey, I don't like it for this, but, you know, there's another context which it still means something. So I, I, Providing context to art is good, I believe, because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. (laughs) Like art is made. I mean, there are some art that just is art upon itself, but there is a great deal of art that is commentary or depiction of life, whether realistic or farcical or like you said, it says something about society at its time whether or not it's what the artist was trying to say. Like there's plenty of racist cartoons out there, like not animated cartoons, like newspaper cartoons that are still images. And we're not calling on, I don't know, the, the old defunct newspapers to just start willingly reprint those without any context to it, because that would be seen as insane. You know, they would have to at least provide a little blurb about, hey, this was um, pretty racist and this, you know, is made in this context and it's bad. So just to sort of sum up what I think our shared position is on this, and you can correct me or prod me if I'm slightly inaccurate. We don't think film should be censored to butcher images and destroy the original context is clearly not pro-social, not pro-artistic. But adding disclaimers we don't feel rises to that level of censorship and can actually enhance viewer understanding of the context of what they're about to see. Yeah. I mean, hell, I'm so anti-editing. I'm not even a Star Wars man, and the re-releases upset me. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's no good. Yeah, and that, and that was for, quote, the better. Um, so, yeah, I don't believe in censorship, but then we get into the territory of where people think, you know, what, what is self-censorship? And people get ideas of what the artist was trying to do or being held back when it could have just been their decisions to hold back um, on something. But... Um, but then that's people reading into things, what they want it to read into. Yeah. I'm generally, uh, anti-censorship, but I have no problem with the artists or, uh, you know, people selling the art to do what they want with it. And if they want to continue to be part of a, you know, again, a small C conservative cultural viewpoint, then, uh, Disney will put these disclaimers on their works. Well said. Thanks. 
So what did we decide on the last topic? Oscar preview. Ah, Oscar previews. Evan, take it away. All right. So I'm just going to give you guys a quick rundown of the top 10 likely Oscar contenders for this upcoming year. And now is this for best picture? picture? This is for all the categories in general. So likelihood, likelihood to attain a high volume of nominations. All right. And it's not a personal list. These aren't necessarily the 10 films that I'm most excited for or that I liked the most, but just the 10 movies that are getting the most Oscar buzz. What what your what your critical eye is seeing as the top 10 of what they're considering. Yes. Okay. These lists and what voice they come from is always a big question. It's not it's not Evans big deal. It's what he thinks other people think is a big deal. Correct. So number 10 is 1917. This is a World War I drama directed by Sam Mendes, who directed American Beauty and uh, recently worked on the some of the new James Bond films. And it's sort of a behind enemy lines thing where two soldiers are trying to relay a message that will hopefully save the lives of many of their fellow soldiers. This is in contention for Best Picture, Best Director, and then a lot of the technical awards, such as cinematography, editing, sound, that type of stuff. So, based on my brief description, Joe, interest in seeing it? Um, yeah, World War One's cool. I watched uh, They Will Not Be Forgotten. That oh, They awesome. Will Not Grow Old? They Will Not Grow Old. You saw that? I've wanted to see that. Was that good? Um... I I did enjoy it. Um, I also, because of my stupid life and how I live it, I was so tired when I saw it, so I ended up sleeping through part of it. Uh, and did you, where did you see that? Was that did you catch that in a I theater or is that streaming? Yeah, I saw it, I saw it in. Uh, I was when it streamed. I was back home in Galesburg, and one day I didn't really have anything going on with a friend, so I drove over to Peoria, the Willow Creeks Theater, and I saw it there. Wow. Awesome. Cool. Oh, and I also wanted to mention that this end segment also comes from a viewer suggestion. Our uh, our listener Dylan B emailed us with a number good of great topics of, that good, good old friend of mine. Thanks for listening. So, he gave us a ton of great topic ideas and we'll probably get to a number of them eventually, but right now we're we're previewing Oscar season, which was which was one of his recommendations. Yeah, we're, we're Oscar SZN yeah. So thank you to Dylan and to Colin. We love our we love our our listeners to write in. We take it very seriously and we appreciate all the support. Yeah, it turns out our call for uh viewer feedback 2 weeks ago was successful because these came right before we filmed the last or uh recorded the last episode. So <laughs> So but please anyway. continue to send it in. So that's 1917. Number 9 is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood which is a fictionalization of a reporter based on Tom Junode who is sent to interview Mr. Rogers and ends up having his entire philosophy on life turned around by meeting Mr. Rogers. This is in contention for Best Picture. Tom Hanks is being touted for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal as Mr. Rogers, as well as Fringe contending for screenplay and director awards it's directed by marielle heller who 
many of you may know from her 2018 film, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, for which Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant were nominated for Oscars. That's a good film. And anyone who knows me knows that this is one that I am very personally excited for. I didn't watch a ton of Mr. Rogers growing up, but last year I was profoundly impacted by the documentary Won't You Be My Neighbor and truly grasping the the dedication to love that that man tried to put into the world has inspired me. I don't, I don't like to buy into inspirational bullshit. I, I think so much of it is manufactured and done for ulterior motives, but I, from everything that I can gather, he is one of the most genuine people to ever walk this planet, and I cannot wait. This is my number. This is pers- on my personal list. This is my number one most anticipated movie for the rest of the year. It's coming out very soon. Actually, by the time that that this episode drops, it'll probably already be in theaters. Um, yeah, Mister Rogers. Um, seeing watching clips of him uh, makes me cry. There's this one where he's like winning an award like a year or two before the end of his life. And he tells everyone that they are special and that they are loved and that they have something. And, oh, geez, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. Like, I can kind of feel it a little bit that they say nobody's perfect. But, oh, man, Mr. Rogers, pretty close. Yeah, definitely had had some... Had some faults. I really recommend you check out the documentary, which was my number two overall rated film of 2018, and the Academy mm-hmm. didn't even nominate it for Best Documentary, which is ridiculous to me. It should have been a Best Picture well, nominee. I mean, geez, Evan, you're in the Academy. They should have listened to you. <laughs> I might as well be in the Academy. But no, even if, you know, it's it's not for critics anyway. It's for industry types. But this, this uh, Beautiful Day in... Excuse me. A beautiful day in the neighborhood may be their opportunity to make it right and give Mr. Rogers some love at the Oscars ceremony. So number eight. Number eight, Bombshell, previously titled Fair and Balanced, is the drama about the sexual assault allegations at Fox News. This one is gaining a ton of buzz in the best picture, best director, screenplay, and number and a number of the acting categories. It is directed by Jay Roach, who is a bit of an interesting name to come up in the Oscar conversation because he's been more of a a silly comedy director. I'm verifying this as we speak, but I'm pretty sure he's the guy who directed the Austin Powers movies. Yeah, <laughs> Austin Powers and then the the Meet the Parents film. And so he's sort of the latest comedy director following Adam McKay and Todd Phillips to cross over into more serious fare. And this movie hasn't been released yet, but it does have that kind of buzz. Charlize Theron is in it, as well as Margot Robbie, who are both receiving acclaim in early reviews for their performances. And this this movie actually had kind of a fraught 
production process. The distributor was all lined up and then backed out, I guess, due to fear of backlash from those who enjoy Fox News. And so they actually had to scramble to find another distributor, and it wasn't it wasn't guaranteed that this film would actually be made. But now that it has been made, it's considered a strong Oscar frontrunner. You know, if if I'm I'm ready for any opportunity to see depictions of flustered Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> just look to YouTube for that, Joe. Oh, I've watched it all. I need new. <laughs> okay, you, you've 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 exhausted the supply, and you need more. Yeah, I'm, I'm seasoned. I I know, I know, Bill. I need more. So number seven. Number seven. Lucky number seven is Joker. Very polarizing film. I know a lot of people have reacted negatively to it. Joe and I had our own disagreement earlier on the podcast about the merits of Joker. I, I quite enjoyed it. Joe was a little bit more mixed. Lukewarm. Yeah, lukewarm. But it is considered a very tippy tip-top contender in the best picture race. Todd Phillips may gain some traction in best director. And Joaquin Phoenix is one of the top two or three front runners in the best actor race right now. That would be, uh, I hope, hope he doesn't pull Heath Ledger. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's yeah. really dark. Why, why did your mind go there? Well, because Heath Ledger also played the Joker and why? I know, but <laughs> I, I, I know that Heath Ledger also won an Oscar for playing the Joker, but my brain didn't jump to, wow, maybe Joaquin Phoenix will die. I said, I hope he doesn't. That's true. I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a mountain out of a molehill here. All right, we've seen Joker. You can listen to, you can dig up our old episodes, listen to some adequately informed classic for more takes on the Joker. Number six is Jojo Rabbit. Ah, the Hitler movie. Yes, exactly. This is a movie that I've seen, and it is set during the end days of World War II, where a young boy in the Hitler Youth, Jojo, has a fanatical devotion to the Third Reich, and so much so that his imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. And this young boy's world is thrown upside down when he realizes that his mother is harboring a young Jewish girl as a refugee. And I've already seen this film. It's a very good film. It's, on, it's in the best, best picture radar as well as Best Original Screenplay for its director, Taika Waititi. Uh, Waititi is getting some buzz for Best Director as well. And then there are a number of acting performances which have been gaining uh, discussion. Chief among them is Scarlett Johansson for her performance as JoJo's mother. And this is one that I would really like to see come through. She might be... I haven't really looked at the entirety of the races right now, but she might be my personal frontrunner for Best Supporting Actress. It's one of Scarlett Johansson's best performances. She brings a real complexity to this mother who is torn between divided loyalties put up against life-or-death stakes. Also, Thomas and Mackenzie is in the supporting actress race for playing the girl who Jojo stumbles upon. Taika Waititi as Adolf Hitler might be put up for supporting actor. 
Sam Rockwell is also gaining buzz for his performance as a basically a Nazi scout leader. And that one is is not among my favorite performances in the film, but it's Sam Rockwell. He's won before. And it's it's definitely an acting showcase. Screenplay is almost a lock, and best picture is looking likely as well. Would you yeah. see it, Joe? This this is this a Joe thing? What's what's your I, I, I haven't seen it, but I'd I wouldn't be opposed to watching it, but I don't watch a ton of films, so I'm not like gung ho. But anyway. Fair enough. Sounds cool. Number five. Number five is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Greta Gerwig, you likely remember from her numerous acting performances, and then as a writer and director for 2017's Lady Bird, which is a magnificent film. She, the, the timing of this Little Women is a little awkward because a new adaptation just came out and was theatrically distributed last year with sort of a no-name cast and creative team. But Greta Gerwig's trying her hand at it with an all-star cast, which includes Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Timothy Chalamet, Laura Dern, and all of those people are, are in... Oscar talks right now, as well as Gerwig for director, best picture, and adapted screenplay. What's it about? So Little Women is an adaptation of the classic novel by Louisa May Alcott about four girls coming into womanhood. And uh. yeah, it's it's a classic coming-of-age story. I will say my personal relationship with it is a bit strange. I was actually in a stage production of Little Women, and so I I feel like I kind of got my fill of Little Women being in Little Women. <laughs> you got your life's fill of Little Women? Yeah, I reached my quota, <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll still see it. I trust Greta Gerwig. You know, maybe I wish that... Because, because Lady Bird was so original and so personal I, I kind of wish that she would have gone back to that well rather than to adapt a property which has already been adapted over and over again but mm -hmm. she's got a lot of talent the people who have seen the movie already really like it so i it's worth seeing anything on this list is worth seeing number four is parasite i have not heard of that all right so parasite i just saw this on Tuesday. So this is the most recent movie I've seen very fresh in my mind. It is a film by the South Korean auteur Bong Joon-ho, and Parasite tells the story of a South Korean family who gradually ingratiates themselves into the life and home of a wealthy South Korean family before things take some very dark twists and turns. Parasite has been one of the most anticipated foreign imports of the year, if not the most anticipated foreign import of the year. This had its debut at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year, where it won the festival's top prize, the Palme d'Or. Stateside, it has been wildly successful, and all across the world, it's actually grossed over a hundred million dollars worldwide, which is extraordinarily rare for just sort of like a a thriller drama that's not in the English language. So this has been mm -hmm. a huge success. Bong Joon-ho, for those who might recognize the name, has already directed a number of films 
both in South Korea and in Hollywood. He made Snowpiercer and Okja. Snowpiercer, I think, is an excellent film. Okja, I did not care for. But Parasite, I really, really liked. It has... I'm not going to try to spoil any more of the plot that I've already given away, but there's a lot of observant social commentary. There's a lot of fun, thrillery thrills, a little bit of murderous intrigue. It's, it's, this movie's got a lot. And it, I, I would be shocked if it doesn't win for Best Foreign Language Film. And it also is considered one of the top contenders for the general prizes as well, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Screenplay. You know, I'm all for South Korea's plan to export its culture to the world. What, what else is in that plan? Um, K-pop's a big part of that. Well, maybe, maybe America's finally ready. They're ready for Parasite. All right. Oh, the other, thing I, the other thing I wanted to note about Parasite, because I use the film review app Letterboxd, Parasite is the site's number one overall rated narrative feature film. Huh. In its history. It just just recently passed The Godfather. It might not hang on to that. Anything with user-generated reviews is always inherently unreliable, but that it could even get into that conversation is telling of how excited people are about this film and how much they're enjoying it after seeing it. And I really enjoyed it. One of the top films of the year for sure that I've seen. Well, maybe I'll check that out. Probably you won't, but I, I, I like the idea of checking it out. All right, I'll take it. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Quentin Tarantino's most recent film. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino of Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Django Unchained, and Glorious Bastards. But it's his final one, right? <laughs> this is his take on late 60s Hollywood. And in many ways, it's a love letter to Hollywood and also an elegy for a bygone era. It follows sort of a small period in the life of formerly successful, now sort of washed-up actor Rick Dalton, played by Leo DiCaprio, and his stunt double, Clint Booth, played by Brad Pitt. And sort of their navigation, how to steer their lives towards success now that the perhaps most lucrative part of their careers has dried up. And I've seen this movie. It's good. I think that it doesn't really stand up with films like Parasite or Jordan Peele's Us, which doesn't even make the top 10 of this list, or The Farewell, which came out just outside of the top 10. It's not really on that tippy-top level to me, but it's an enjoyable film. It's a well-made film. There's some good performances. Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie all star in it and are all considered virtual locks to take home at least nominations. I know this is being talked about as Brad Pitt's best chance to finally win an acting Oscar. He's won as a producer, but he has never won as an actor, and people are widely speculating that this is his chance. And... Quentin Tarantino will likely get screenplay and director nominations, and the film, it would be a major upset if it didn't score a Best Picture nomination. But mm -hmm. it also screened at Cannes, and it lost the Palme d'Or to Parasite. So, 
Ah, crazy. People from Hollywood love stories about Hollywood. Yeah, it's that classic, uh, I don't know, you want to call it a circle jerk? Kind of. All right. Uh, that, that's that's kind of, you know, about, about what it is. Kind of a circle jerk. Number two. Number two is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Another mob story reuniting all of his favorite cast members, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. The, ga- the gang's all back together. And a lot of... It, it's, it's almost like an iteration. Like, he, he, he's taking what he's learned from all the other works and just done it again. Yeah. And, you know, people really like it. People, some people are saying it's his best work maybe since Goodfellas. And a lot is being made of the length. It's about three and a half hours long. And it's, it's in theaters, or it will be in theaters, but ultimately it's, gonna, it's, it's a Netflix original production. So this is one that you at home don't have to go see in the theaters. Far be it for me to tell anyone not to go to the theater, but you will be able to watch this with your Netflix subscription in December. All of those yeah. actors that I mentioned are probably going to be at least in the conversation. The Irishman is perhaps the front runner for Best Picture right now, as well as Scorsese in direction and screenplay categories. I'm excited about this film. I uh, I actually want to try and go see it in theaters if I can figure it out. Um, I was going. There were some chances earlier this month for me to go see it, but with my schedule, I was not able to. That's this is something I'm looking forward to watching, and if that's at great. All possible in the big screen, we got especially Joe to say he was screen. excited about a movie. That's that's big, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, um, especially uh, for me, it's a draw that they say it's three and a half hours long. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, they have something to say. Yeah. So yeah, Joe's excited. That's awesome. I hope you I hope you get to see it in theaters or at very least on Netflix and maybe we'll discuss it discuss it here on the podcast because yeah. I will definitely be watching as well. Number one. The number one Oscar contender is Noah Bombach's marriage story. Noah Bombach is Through a curveball there, I ain't heard of it. <laughs> oh really? Okay. Yeah, well, Noah Bombach is an esteemed writer and director. My favorite of his films is The Squid and the Whale, which is, wow, almost 15 years old at this point. I did not see it in its original run, needless to say. Mm -hmm. But he is one of those directors who makes his living in observing people in crisis. The Squid and the Whale is about a family that's undergoing a very painful divorce and he's tapping that well again for marriage story depicting a marriage on the rocks between scarlett johansson and adam driver and both are being lauded for giving what critics are largely considering some of their career best work as well as bombbacks so it's definitely in contention for all of the major awards i feel like i sound like a broken record but best picture Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Acting nominations likely for Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. I'm also kind of interested in this one. I saw that Adam Driver was in a movie about something, and I don't know. I enjoyed him 
I mean, I saw him in Star Wars. I actually did go see whatever the first one Star Wars he was in. And then also liked him in Black Klansman. So I'm kind of a, I'm a fan. Well, then you're in luck, Joe, because Marriage Story is in an identical situation to The Irishman. It is getting a theatrical release, but ultimately it's a Netflix original film and will be available to stream in December. Is it also three and a half hours long? It is not. Oh, darn. I can only spend my time on things that require large time commitments. <laughs> well, make it a double feature, and then that'll be the <laughs> largest time commitment of all. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's spooky Oscar season. Yeah, plenty of movies getting buzz. Would love to cover all of them, but I feel like this segment is already longer than most of our end segments, so... Yeah. What movies are you excited for? Let us know, drop a comment wherever you listen, or see it on social. Do you watch movies? Tell us. This is the end segment. The drums are playing, so we thank you for listening. Uh, We ask you, if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Also, recommend us to your friends. Uh, we We like getting out there. We like talking. All that fun stuff. Uh, we want to thank Anthony Hish for this uh, drum beat that you're hearing right now. Evan, you got anything? Yeah, just thank you to our email respondents, Colin and Dylan. We appreciate your contributions to the show this week. And thank you very much for listening. Yeah, and above all, we hope that you've been... Adequately informed. <laughs>